Welcome to The Brand Collective, a podcast about our favorite brands, featuring stories from the marketers and creatives behind them. I'm your host, Nick Ross. With me, Mackenzie Koss, marketer extraordinaire. Let's get into it. Today, we have Patrick O'Rourke, the Senior Brand Manager at Hasbro. Welcome, Patrick. We are stoked to have you on The Brand Collective podcast today. Ah, oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your experience in this sort of magical world you live in at a company as recognizable as Hasbro? <laughs> it is kind of magical, right? We're like little elves working in a in a tool shed pulling things together, or maybe it's a what like a like an elm tree. I don't know. Where do elves? Keebler, yeah, like the Keebler <laughs> elves. Yeah. Elves, yeah. Yes. Think, you know? And there's the cobbler <laughs> elves. We're some sort of elf. That's that's what a Hasbro employee is. Um, really, it's it's kind of funny. I mean, I've been a huge fan of gaming and toys and collectibles my whole life. I am um, I'm one of the coolest guys you'll ever meet with all of my uh, six inch figures still still boarded. Um, but really, how I got to Hasbro started um, many years earlier. I uh, uh, I went to school. I studied graphic design, creative advertising. It was I had the dream of working in the advertising industry. That was really the the big goal of mine uh, when I first started, and that's exactly what I did. I got a job at a couple of smaller digital focused startups. Um, was able to work on some really cool, creative, uh, new things for the time. Um, a lot of social media stuff. When all the um, more experienced veterans of the industry were like, "Social media, that's the dumbest thing ever. TV is where it's at." And I was kind of like, "All right, well, hook me up with that social media work. You know, let me try." Let me cut my teeth there. And I um, had some pretty nice early successes within the industry that kind of got my name out there, kind of got me known for for trying to do these, again, out of the box, more experimental kind of campaigns. And while I was doing all that, I had gotten real into podcasting. That's why I have this mic that I hooked up poorly at the very beginning of this <laughs> interview. I know a listener won't be able to know that, but I, yeah. but that did happen real life. Great, great uh, mic. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the SM7B is the best. It's the industry standard. I yeah. love this thing. You just got to plug it in. That's how you make it work. <laughs> um, so I uh, I started podcasting with some friends of mine. I'm, as I mentioned, uh, I'm from Chicago, or I don't know if I've mentioned that on air or not, but being from Chicago, uh, everybody there does improv, stand-up comedy. It's kind of part of the DNA, part of your genetics if you're a Chicagoan. You get some stage time and make stuff up. Uh, so I did that as well. So my friends and I, you know, we were doing the podcast thing and uh, getting a little bit of a following doing that. And then that really started to pop when I uh, started playing games on our podcast. I started producing a podcast where people were playing Duchess and Dragons and role-playing games. We're getting our funny friends together to do that. And that was before stuff like Critical Role and uh, some of the more memorable or, or Famous, you know, Vin Diesel plays with Critical Role, and you know, there's celebrities who play D and D together now um, on the internet. I think Stephen Colbert just did a thing. Um, so this was way before all that kind of stuff. So that kind of was starting to pop. I was kind of making my way in the the advertising industry. I actually left the advertising industry for a few years to just run my own small production studio where we were doing live streams, we were streaming on Twitch, we were doing podcasts. There's a bunch of really gaming oriented content. Um, I went back into advertising. And I had my first daughter and then really the whole idea of running a content studio where you play games all day while exciting and super fun isn't really conducive to uh, fatherhood and all the responsibilities that come along with that. And so I um, 
had this opportunity at Hasbro, which seemed like a perfect fit. They needed somebody over there to could take a different look at marketing, market different than you know Hasbro tra- just traditionally had done. If you think about it, it's a hundred year old company. There's a right. lot of stuff within that place that is like they have well established truths. They created the whole well in part created the whole Saturday morning cartoon to sell toys thing, right? So they had a certain model that they'd been following for a very long time. And um, they were looking for some fresh blood specifically within the games department. And because I was doing all the streaming and podcasting and everything, it ended up being a, a really great fit. And now I am the marketing lead on the Avalon Hill business, which is tabletop board games, um, tabletop brands, uh, uh, really focused on that adult gamer, people who like strategy games, tabletop games. So it's been a pretty, pretty cool ride. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I love how you say uh, when social media was still sort of like a, was maybe met with quizzical looks. Um, I feel like as a video producer, I was in the same boat. I started making web series when people were like, what are you doing? Web series? You yeah. know, like get a real job. And it feels yeah. like <laughs> now it's such a... Uh, you know, now these are front and center in in terms of content, which is so cool. No, I just find it so remarkable that the skills that you picked up um, became a job and that everybody early on was just doing it out of love and experimentation. You know, I think there's a whole generation of us. I don't know. I don't really want to call myself a content creator at this point, but who kind of have a DIY attitude towards creativity and production. And that has propelled Full career. I owe my entire career to this idea that, hey, I think this would be a fun, cool thing to make. And then you just started. And now that's like the world, right? It's it just blows my mind all the time. Yeah. I love that. I I relate to it so deeply that it 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 almost came out of, you know, like there used to be such uh intense gatekeepers to any kind of creativity. And it feels like everyone in 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 my era was like, well, we'll just do what we can. And all of a sudden, technology allowed it to be better and better. And like uh, now, it's just, I mean, it's it's incredible the maker landscape. Um, yeah. And it's cool to like turn a personal passion into a career. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, how it feels? You know, like I I often use the analogy getting a job or getting a job at the coffee shop you love, you know, like seeing how the sausage is made kind of, you know, like in that, in that energy, uh, does it feel, do you feel proud to work for the company that's kind of maybe the, the biggest name in this world that also is part of a passion that you have? Yeah, extremely proud. It's sort of all we, gaming has always been a part of my identity in one way or another, um, especially in adulthood. As a kid, I think it's probably in, you know, a lot higher volume of people's identities when they're young and then they grow up and they mature or whatever they do. I guess that never happened for me. And it just became part of my everyday and my life. And the fact that now it's incorporated into my career and I have learned so, so very much not only it from like how it's manufactured to how it's created to like how to make sure it's fun. There's a lot of things you can create that have people doing stuff, moving cards, rolling dice, whatever. And it's boring, right? <laughs> dice can be very boring. Yeah. Like, it's inherently fun. And so just learning all of those pieces, I just feel so fortunate and so fortunate to see how that translates into other things I love, like video games, storytelling, screenwriting, 
um, it's really this kind of shared creative journey that a lot of endeavors go under um, that that doing this one professionally has really opened my eyes to. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, so on your LinkedIn profile, you describe yourself as a professional world builder. Can you talk a oh, little wow. bit about uh, what that means to you? Having it said back to me sounds a little like I'm a little <laughs> arrogant, but uh, <laughs> I will say, uh, I, we are um, on the Avalon Hill team. We are professional world builders. We don't make a game, really. A game is the, a friend of mine said this, and I don't remember which friend it was. So I'm sorry if you're listening. I'm not, and I'm not giving you the proper credit. But if you think about what a great gaming experience is, especially for an adult, it's a world that you get to exist in. And then the game mechanics and all of the things that are happening, they kind of serve as the gravity that holds you in there and allow you to have that experience. But if you don't create this immersive world for somebody, then all you're literally doing is picking up pieces of plastic and pushing pushing paper around and like shuffling, you know, uh, all these different componentry. You're not, uh, you know fighting elves or uh, climbing a mountain or building train lines, right? You have to be able to create that experience um, and that experience be translatable, especially in the Hasbro world to things like movies and TV shows and video games. You have to be able to think, is this something that somebody would want to be in and exist as for any given period of time? Is this something that's enjoyable? There's a game I really like. It's not a Hasbro game. It's called Wingspan. And to me, what I really like about it, um, it's made by this designer, Elizabeth, Elizabeth. And what she did is it's a game about bird watching. And if you were to look at it on paper, you'd be like, bird watching. Right. That seems weird. <laughs> <Yeah>. Or <laughs> but she turned it into this beautiful experience that it's fun to be a part of. And I think that that's part of the magic of what we get to do as little elves living in an elm tree is we get to uh try to create an experience that you wouldn't have had elsewhere or wouldn't have been possible otherwise. Yeah, it's really it's really amazing. To what degree does um, the breadth of an audience come into your conversations around how to keep people interested versus keep people um, who are, you know, there's such a wide range of gamers, I assume, like from people that are just getting into the industry or maybe starting to have fun with friends in a new way to people that are like hardcore, deep into it, like dyed-in-the-wool gamers. Um, are there certain ways to approach those audiences or certain like tactics that you use when sort of coming up with new, you know, new concepts or new ideas? Yeah, and that's a really great question. I, I do think it assumes a world where people are either in or either out. And I think if you're doing it properly, and I think this is your goal as a brand, your goal as any sort of person who's trying to attract an audience or fandom is to create something that's welcoming enough for a new person, but deep enough for someone to enjoy over and over and over again. And I think that that's like a super hard struggle to achieve, right? Even the MCU at this point, right? That MCU, if you're jumping in right now on Doctor Strange, <laughs> like it's not that well. <laughs> Right, it's not that well. There's so much stuff you've got to know, so many series you've got to watch, and they're like the most mainstream version of, I would say, this kind of nerd culture thing going going mass. And I think that that's the the 
challenge and what you're trying to accomplish is like, well, if this is your first time sitting down, how do you feel? What's the, as my friend Doug would say, what's the game loop the first time? What's the the series of events you're going to take the very first time you play that introduce you to allow you to then start to master that over and over and over again, the more you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. What a, it's funny because I've never thought of uh, Marvel as the most mainstream, you know, avenue yeah. for this culture. Um, what's, it's got to be maybe Star Wars, but I would guess Marvel is bigger. Like, yeah. Well, yeah. And it's funny that they're the same, you know, same umbrella at this point. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, can you talk about game? You mentioned it a little bit that it's very similar to, you know, marketing any brand. And you come from marketing different types of brands prior to working at Hasbro. Um, can you talk a little bit about what makes this gaming audience unique versus maybe audiences for a brand like a Miller Lite or like, you know, maybe a more pop culture recognizable yeah. brand? For sure. I mean, as you mentioned, I've worked in all sorts of industries. I've worked in beer, I've worked in insurance, uh, I've worked in banking, uh, health food, all sorts of stuff throughout my career as an advertiser. And I think that that is one of the reasons um, uh, I'm able to adapt strategies to building fandoms, I think. And that's the goal, really, within the category of gaming. I'd say with this fan, it's really, or this player, this gamer, because fan almost assumes they're they're not participatory and this person is very participatory um in what they're purchasing and and how they're choosing to spend their valuable free time i think it comes down to relationship building and trust right they need to be able to trust that you're gonna you're doing this to support them and to support their friends and then when when they purchase your product they're, again they're not just experiencing it right they're not just like picking up being like oh wow look this is a great taste in beer that I'm drinking. I'll never have another one. When they're buying it, when they're, when they're getting into it, they're like, part of themselves are part of the experience, right? Because then they're, they're going to their friend's house and we're like, I just found this game. I think it's going to be super awesome. I can't wait for all of us to have a good time playing this together. So to be, to convince someone to do that with your brand, it's, it's again, convince is probably not the right word. It's about right. building a relationship trust with them that each time you deliver something, you're going to deliver something that exceeds their expectations and kind of makes them look good in front of all their friends and get, make sure all of their friends have an amazing time together. And I think you do that with, you know, a singular product, but you also do that through delivering a product experience and uh, marketing campaigns and going to conventions and all sorts of the other things outside of the product experience that can help you build and establish that trust. Do those other aspects involve kind of traditional channels like influencers within the world and, you know, proper advertising and, or is it, does gaming have its own culture that's sort of born out of word of mouth or, you know, I'm just curious about where, where the ways in are. Yeah. I would say though, maybe outside of B2B, but I would even put some B2B work in here. Word of mouth is by far the most valuable thing you can ever have. 
right? Word of mouth is like way more valuable than any sort of media buy or anything. So driving super positive word of mouth should be something that a brand is always focused on and thinking about. Because what it does is it speaks to your brand as its entire experience, not as like a piece of creative or a one-off thing. The entire experience allows that brand to be shared word of mouth and is probably the most valuable thing you can drive. In gaming, that is especially true. Um, again, it's because of this foundation of trust that needs to be built. Um, you're not going to play, if you don't trust me, if you think my taste in games and your taste in games are way different, if I come up to you and I'm like, bro, I've got this game. It takes 17 hours to play and has 17,000 pieces. You're gonna be like, I don't trust that guy's opinion, right? I'm more of a, uh, give me a deck of cards and I want to play some Euchre or whatever you're into, <laughs> um, which I love Euchre. <laughs> this is not a judgment. It's just like, there's, you know, that you have to believe that what's being being delivered is something that 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 you're going to like. Um, that being said, a brand is is so many different pieces coming together and working properly that I, I kind of subscribe to the saying. And I have a few of these like really like pithy, probably super marketing internal talk sayings, but it, a brand, you know, a brand is what you do, not what you say. And I, I really, truly believe that in every project I work on. And again, some of the things you can do is create traditional advertising, create billboards, do that kind of stuff. But how you do that, what you choose to say, how you choose to activate it really makes an impact on your audience and your your ability to attract them to your to your products and, and, and to your brand in a more broader sense. I do think we're kind of past this era of unless you're like a Geico or a McDonald's, like a super, super big brand where you can just repeat things over and over again, you really have to get into a, a space where you become more integrated into how your consumer is using your product and living their lives. Can you talk a little bit about the, the brand that you currently manage and how that consumer integrates with the games that you, you currently have? Yeah. I mean, for us, the consumer, the player is number one above everything else. Um, we brought back, it was one of my very first projects on Avalon Hill, um, is we brought brought back a classic game called Hero Quest. It was a huge game in the late 80s, early 90s. A lot of really fun memories for people who are into this, you know, uh, who are now adults way into like Warhammer 40k and these these collectible miniatures based games. It was many of their first experiences and a game I remembered fondly and most of my team remembered fondly. Funny enough, the reason we decided to do it is because I had a very old copy sitting on my desk. Uh, a coworker who is now a friend of mine walked by and said, oh, dude, you play Hero Quest? And I'm like, yeah, I just found it in the vault. I was like, oh, I'm going to pull this out. <laughs> Everybody wants to play it. We started playing and we're like, why isn't anybody making this game anymore? So point is, we knew we couldn't get Hasbro to support it because it seems kind of like niche and weird and and not that they didn't support it, but wouldn't just be like, all right, we're going to make 100,000 of these and ship them all over the world without proving it. And so we did. We brought it back to life via crowdfunding um, and really tried to get as close as we could to the the current HeroQuest audience, the people still playing and, and new people to really support this endeavor and you know put their money down before the product was even complete. And in doing so, we learned a lot. We made a lot of mistakes, but we listened to them pretty closely. And, you know, we had some redesigns of some of the character sculpts. We thought about how we handled social media differently. Um, 
we had <laughs> uh, uh, evil wizard named Sargon now controls our Twitter account thanks to those fans, right? Like a lot <laughs> of what was happening was because they were telling us what they needed. And as a team, as an organization, we weren't quite ready for that. So we needed them to tell us. And by doing so, I think we've improved our entire group and our abilities to like, again, activate on social in the way that matters. Like, cause you could just like, you know, take pictures of your minis and post them. That's, that's one way to do social media, but another way to do it is like have some fun and do play with them the way they want to play the game and the way they want to play with you. Um, and now we're doing, you know, conventions and all sorts of other things that are, are very much kind of what is being asked of us more broadly. And it's like, that's a great idea. Can we, afford to make that happen can we pull that off within the constraints that that we have and you know some things we've been able to and some things you know we're working on right i feel like what <laughs> you're speaking to is a very modern predicament especially with brands that have such loyal fan bases or such like uh particular fan base you know like it, it feels yeah. like bringing back a game that rests in so many people's like nostalgic, you know, heart, it feels super sensitive, but having the sensitivity to be like, this is what we're doing. Oh, we're, we're going to see some pushback on this choice we made. Maybe we change that choice to a, to appease or to like honor this audience. Um, does that feel like a, a, a bigger facet of marketing in a world that, that has such such a fan or such like a, a loyal and informed fan base? I think so. I think again, like most things, there's a tension that exists. You want to drive the brand and gameplay forward into a new era. You can't keep all the old stuff, you know, you, it, then it's just an old game. It's not a new thing. Um, and sometimes that does kind of put pressure on the current fan base or the people's nostalgia um but in turn you do you have like a responsibility to them because in a lot of ways you're selling them their childhood you know and i, I feel that way very much about myself i'm a massive star trek fan massive star trek fan and i have like some beef with where star trek is today because i don't know if it's good or bad that's up to you know each person but as a kid John Luke Picard was the man and he was all, oh, I was going to come someday. And now Picard's got his own show and they're making some choices with that fella that I'm like, wait a minute, when I was a kid, that's not how this dude was. And so I think you kind of need to be able to, you know, just like Picard is doing to keep my Star Trek analogy going, like they're evolving the character and they're moving things forward and changing it, but they can't lose their roots because if you do that along the way, then you've made something completely different and you should have, you should never have taken that brand's mantle on. You should have taken on a new brand's mantle and been like, this is a different thing. It might be inspired by a previous thing, but it's something completely new. Yeah. It just, it, it's yeah. really fascinating, especially the, the immediate response that every choice probably receives just through this sort of social media world where you make a choice, yeah. <laughs> bam, you're going to be met with the reaction right away. It's not going to be like, we're going to do six months of market <laughs> research. It's like, they know but and I let you know. Yeah. Yeah, truly. And I don't know who, <laughs> uh, this is going to sound terrible. <laughs> but I've, I've, <laughs> Let's hear it. 
I've never worked at an organization that truly did six months of good market research and then actually actioned that market research in a good way. I know people spend a lot of money on research. I've been on ethnos. I've gone, like I've traveled the country, seeing how people drink beer in all different states. And then we come back and you say like, well, this is blah, blah, blah. This is what's happening. They're like, great. We're going to keep doing what we've always done. And you're like, <laughs> okay. You know, so I don't, I don't know if research alone is a catalyst for change, right? I think the catalyst for change, the immediacy of what digital gives you is like, okay, I can, I, I understand what that is. It's tangible. I can decide or we can decide as a team whether or not this is something we want to pursue and then move, right? As, as opposed to it being more like kind of ethereal, maybe you can build a five-year strategy off of, but it, it doesn't have the same immediate impact. This is Stan with the brand, and this is going into the VR chat app and Meta, aka Facebook. So inside the VR chat, there are rooms where users can meet. Uh, some are innocent and everyday, such as McDonald's restaurant. They're kind of diving into that. But on the flip side, there are some more interesting or risque things, such as pole dancing in strip clubs and children mixing freely with adults. So one man told one of their researchers that avatars are able to do just not exactly appropriate things. Following the BBC News investigation um, that this is based off of uh, National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, the NSPCC, they said improvements in online safety are a matter of urgency. Uh, Mr. Burroughs, who's from there, said that they had found was an extraordinary, it's children being exposed to entirely inappropriate and really incredibly harmful experiences, whereas that wasn't the intention, if you will, of the VR chat. And as far as the stand with the brand goes, kind of being able to decipher the difference between virtual and reality and how that's mixing together now and in the future, do you stand with the brand in that sense or do you take a seat? Maybe I need a little clarification on okay. stand, what standing with the brand. Okay. <laughs> like what you mean in this context, what you mean by that? Totally good. Yes. So stand with the brand. Are you agreeing with how they are conducting, you know, maybe this investigation kind of just making sure that when these things happen, they are flagged and that there's something that can be done about it. If you kind of agree with that, or if you're not on board with VR chat app and kind of where this is heading. I'll stand with the brand in this way. This, this is what I yeah. think. I think we are putting fake constraints by using words like VR and reality. It's all okay. reality, right? Yeah. Some of it exists in a digital world, but it's all reality. These are things yeah. that are literally happening to you while you're using a digital interface, right? But it's happening to you. Right. Sexual harassment is a terrible thing. Yeah. It needs to be highly regulated, whether that's I have, I have no policy maker, right? Whether that's yeah. through government action or through the platforms, I would guess government action is probably the only way to actually make it sustainable. I mean, look at all the trouble Meta slash Facebook is in for all the stuff they claim they were doing that they didn't do. Right. Um, I just think my, my point being is that we have to be able to make digital content and digital experiences safe for everybody and they should be able to comfortably use it without being marginalized, attacked, or hurt in any way. And that should be our goal. Yeah. I, that also goes like, 
in the other direction where there's freedoms to do what you want to do, right? but it can't be at the expense of anybody else. I think that's perfectly put because um, it makes me think of some of the like movies and stuff that have come out or even on, there's a show on Netflix, I'm blanking on the name of it, but that that kind of got blended into it, that virtual and uh, reality and how harmful it can be unless there is, like you said, something set in place, some sort of policy and making people feel safe because it is supposed to be that's something fun and like an experience that people can be able to go to, to have fun without feeling like, oh, this is just like reality. It's just now I'm in a VR chat room and, you know, there are risks of like pedophiles and all these other things and how to have those reported and prevent those things from happening. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, we don't want any of those things in real life. No, exactly. <laughs> it's, um, so it's like double. Yeah. And again, it's still real life. Yes. And it's virtual, but it's still real. It still happens. Yeah. The only thing that happens on Twitter is bullying, right? It's not a yep. different thing. It's just on a different platform. It's just communicated in a different way. Yes. Um, and so I don't know. It scares me. Yeah. It scares me so much. Because I have a young daughter. It's actually her first, fourth birthday today. Happy and birthday. it's just like, Happy yeah. birthday. Now back to a very <laughs> serious conversation. <laughs> well, and, or we can talk about unicorns and stuff <laughs> she's into, which I love all of it. Um, and games. I've, I've brainwashed her. But uh, my point being, it, we have to make sure that we're, when we're building these new kind of ecosystems for us to exist in, we're building them with mm-hmm. intent in mind. Right. Yeah, I think that's really poignant. I, I've never really heard it put in such a relatable way that it is yeah. reality. It isn't like we're, and I think so many people see it as like, this is where I can go to escape the laws of our, you know, corporal form and, you know, yeah. just become a nightmare of a person. Um, yeah. But I think, yeah, I think that's a, that's a wonderful way of putting it. And that's how I think about it now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, You've inspired uh, us. Yeah. I just tried not too long ago. I was in Los Angeles and I had a friend that had the new Oculus headset and I just tried that for the first time. And it was, it's kind of, it's mind blowing what, what is possible now. Um, but yeah, hearing stories like this, that sort of challenge, uh, that core belief that we're all trying to do the best we can and people are inherently good. <laughs> Um, yeah, it just, you know, it's why we have, uh, organization structures and policymakers and, you know, it's, yes. it's, <laughs> it sort of speaks to like how humans have learned to coexist, uh, in harmony That's which, for a reason, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, so everybody needs to take a breath. <laughs> After that. <laughs> Back a little heavy. <laughs> <laughs> what uh and that's that's our only stand with the brand today yes sweet um sorry that was a little that one went a little dark but it's, no, it's good I, to talk about yeah i agree <laughs> so our next segment is sort of our our final segment in the episode but we like to ask every guest that comes on uh a few questions that just sort of uh pique curiosity you know doesn't necessarily have to be about uh, marketing and branding, but just life on earth. 
Um, oh, wow. My best kind of things to talk about. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so the first question is, what have you recently done for the very first time? Hmm. That's a great question. What have I recently done for the very first time? Let me think about that. Oh my God, I'm drawing a blank. I had, it's cause, you know, pandemic life. It feels like I've done everything over and over and over again. I, I actually, this is work related. It's kind of weird, but I, I got to go to a, um, I got to go to a conference where it was all old school, super established developers. And then myself. So I was like hanging out with all of these like legends, like legends within the game design space. And it was my first time going. I knew nobody. The person I was supposed to go with, um, she got COVID right beforehand. So I had to show up by myself. So I walk into this place. It's like super intimidating, right? I'm like me. I'm like, hey, I'm, you know, I've been working at Hasbro a couple of years. I, I like marketing and games. And it's all these guys who are like, you know, I've made some of the greatest games ever made. And I got to actually hang out with them and, and talk to them. And it was one of those experiences where you kind of uh, left your body for a few moments. You're like, how did I end up at this table and at this moment? That was pretty remarkable. And I, it's, it's kind of like dream achieved in a lot of ways, you know? Yeah. How, awesome. how was that? Like, what did they like spin around in a old musty leather chair? <laughs> like, so, <laughs> you know? <laughs> they were actually kind of. The funny thing is, especially about these guys who've made um, games that you know and love, right? You, they're not. They're, they've done well for themselves in all sorts of ways, but they're not like celebrities, right? They're not like they walk down the street and people aren't stopping and shaking their hands being like, oh my gosh, you're the guy that made Game of Life. Right. This older man actually died this year named Ruben, who's a super, super friendly guy. But they're just, again, not, they're only celebrities to those who know them. And then those who know them are like, you're, you're the guy who, who did this, you know, did X, Y, and Z. Um, so they were very friendly, unassuming, would invite you to come game with them. They watch you game, though, in a way that like friends don't like they want to see how like what you know, you know, like, are you counting the cards or counting the number of things in the cards like are what are you doing to win? And, I, you know, lucky for me, I'm a power gamer. So I always play to, to win. So I'm like <laughs> doing this stuff. And these guys are complimenting me. They're like, for the first time through it, you know, you did pretty well. Or again, there's the opposite of that where they're like. Hey man, that was a huge mistake you just made. I'm like, no. So anyway, <laughs> it was it's it got very into the the mechanics of playing, I guess. Yeah, that's high stake. I mean, that's incredible. I I yeah. agree. I feel like the best type of famous people are, are the famous people that a few people would recognize. You know, like yeah, the, the authors before all their books are turned into movie. You know, like the yeah. Next question: If you had one thing that you were to bring to a show and tell right now, what do you think you would bring? Like if you were invited to a show and tell? Um, I think I would bring my guitar probably. Uh, I, my guitar, well, one of the reasons I got into everything that I do for fun is because of the guitar. I started playing it, you know, when I was a kid, play it all the time. I played in like, really bad pop punk bands and heavy metal bands. And this is in the, in Chicago in the era where like, you know, Fall Out Boy was popping and Fall Out Boy's from Chicago. So it's like that kind of era of, of kind of terrible 
pop punk music. Um, but I love it and I play it all time. And I kind of have fallen out of love with the guitar. I'm back in love with it. And I'm on one of those streaks where it's like, I have one there and there. And I, every time I walk out of a stressful meeting or something, I bang a few chords. And I don't know, I think, I think it's really a reflection of a lot of my beliefs is like a marketer and a parent and a person kind of comes from my my passion for that instrument and i'm not good at it that's the other thing it's not like i'm great at it oh. probably i'm not great as a dad or a <laughs> marketer either but i do it and i exist and i work really hard and i love it so yeah that's that's remarkable i yeah it's very humble you're probably great you're probably awesome at yeah <laughs> Probably, but but there's a lot of people who are a lot lot better than I am. Yeah, I can hit some chords and yell some sad lyrics like nobody. <laughs> oh, that's my. I was once described by a friend that was like, "Oh, what's Nick's, Nick's taste in music? Oh, it's just sad music. It's just music, <laughs> music that brings you down." Like whenever I, I would, say, like, yeah, I'm, I'm into the guys crying over their guitars. I'm into that. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my my vibration. Um. Yeah. If you were to give one piece of advice to a younger version of yourself, what advice do you think you would give? Go for it. Like, go. Like, I think when you're young, everyone tells you to hedge your bets. And I kind of hedged my bets a bit in, in certain regards instead of just like, just push it, man. Just go for it. Like, if there's something you want to do, work hard at it, but don't slow down because it's difficult or because there's expectations that it's not doable. It is. It just requires focus, time, and effort. And most people do not know what they're talking about when they tell you you can't do something. Like, what do they know? They couldn't do something they tried. They don't know you. They don't know your passion or your dreams. So just go. I love that. Yeah. Anything else coming up or anything else that uh, Avalon Hill or Hasbro or anything that you guys are working on right now that you're super stoked about? Yeah, I mean, a lot. We did announce a few weeks ago, Betrayal at House on the Hill 3rd Edition. That was a, that's a big project for myself and the team. It's available for pre-order now. Shameless plug. Um, but I, I truly love that game and what we as a team have been able to do with it. So I'm, I'm super excited for that coming out. Um, I'll be having a... <laughs> I'm like a baby making machine. I'll be having a second baby. So I won't be able to be at Gen Con this year, which is the biggest gaming convention. The Avalon Hill team should be there. There'll be some tournaments and stuff. So I'm super excited for that. So if you're into tabletop gaming or whatever, um, and you go to Gen Con, Gen Con's a huge for, if you're not into it, it's a huge gaming convention in Indianapolis. Um, people should go check that out. That's amazing. Uh, awesome. it's, it's truly been wonderful talking to you, man. I really appreciate you taking the yes. time. Yeah. Thanks so much. You're listening to a brand folder podcast where we like to say strong brands live here. Join us as we build the brand collective, a podcast for anyone curious about the people behind the brands that we all love. We're available on Spotify and Apple podcasts. Subscribe. And if you feel inspired, leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Until next time, this has been The Brand Collective.